Welcome to the podcast of P1 Ventures, revitalizing American manufacturing through entrepreneurship. Hi, and welcome to the P1 Ventures podcast. My name is David DeSalt. I'm the founder and CEO of P1 Ventures, an upstate New York manufacturing and technology company. One of our primary purposes in life is to revitalize American manufacturing through entrepreneurship, really trying to bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States, investing in the middle class so we can create value on a global scale through the products that we make and that we export. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking a lot about the next generation workforce in manufacturing, and we introduced a number of people that kind of walked us through the things that we're doing to generate the next generation or create the next generation workforce. Last week, we introduced what we believe is the building foundation for the future manufacturing company in terms of operating systems. We introduced our concept of a spindle operating system. The idea of Industry 4.0 talks about how technology and software can be used to digitize and automate how manufacturing companies operate from design to production to shipping and logistics. And we introduced four primary foundations. We talked about vision, mission, and values process excellence in terms of manufacturing, sales and marketing automation and digitization to try and create scale on the front end of a business, supply chain at scale, leveraging and optimizing the use of smaller manufacturers with open capacity in the United States, and wrapping all of those things into software. And that to us is the next generation operating system. So today we want to talk a lot about the software piece. And I have with me the CEO of Piston Incorporated, which is a P1 launched company, which is software centric to help digitize and automate how manufacturing companies operate. And today, PJ Belomo, the CEO is with us. Good morning, PJ, and welcome to the show. Good morning, Dave. So PJ, I just want to give you a quick background as before we jump into questions and so forth. Last year, when we determined to launch our own software company out of P1, to be able to create and build a platform for the spindle operating system, PJ joined us as an advisor, uh, you know, really kind of jumped in both feet to help us understand how do we build a software company, how do we establish a team and really get this thing so not only can we create value for P1, but also for our customers and other manufacturing companies on a global scale. So PJ, with that in mind, uh, you joined the company full-time as the CEO of Piston. It's a standalone company. You're a very, very seasoned individual. Uh, I've gotten to know you over the last uh, six to eight months. Uh, you're, you're, you're enthusiastic. You're passionate. You're smart. You're hardworking. You've been a great uh, you know, addition to our team in, in terms of the vision we're trying to accomplish. Tell us about your background, specifically related to building software companies and why you're excited about those things. So I've been in this space for the last uh, 20 years. I left uh, management consulting and joined a Fortune 500 company as VP of e-commerce. And we had to develop our own platform from the ground up. You, you just didn't have off-the-shelf e-commerce software, at least not that you could rely on in, say, 1999-2000. So in 18 months, we built a high-margin $10 million business after launching it with inside a Fortune 500 company, and I was completely hooked. Then, you know, that led to three years. We left there. My boss and I, he took on a gig as a full-time CEO at an uh, e-commerce startup that really was in a turnaround situation, asked me to join him as a COO, and we're very successful. We sold to a public company, 
and then I was off and running. Seven years CEO at Property Room, tech-enabled services startup. That led to two years as a partner at Black Mercury, a boutique software firm, then two years as CEO at uh, Rocket Docs. It was in a turnaround situation. It was another SaaS company in sales enablement. And you know that all of that got me through about 20 years of software experience. And my wife and I looked at each other last year and said it was time to come home. We've uh, maintained a home in upstate New York, greater Albany area, for uh, the last 25 years. And um, I started networking in upstate New York. And people introduced me to you and John. I'm and sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one of the interesting things that made us similar right away was I was like, listen, to me, the people connection is important. I'm very passionate about my work, but it, it's got to work at a personal level. So I said, let's not get married. Let's date first. Let's find a way to just, you know, what problems do you have that I might be able to help you with? And you talked about Spindle, and I thought I could help, and it was a really fun fall. And, um, yeah, then you kind of surprised me in November saying, you know, I'm thinking I just ought to own a software company. I already own a manufacturing company. And in January, we launched Piston. You and I really worked well together in that period in the fall. You were more of an advisor. You weren't mm -hmm. a full-time, or we didn't launch a company. But one of the things I really like about you is you're very agile, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we would constantly get new data and information. We're really looking at the software business, trying to figure out how it could create value in the manufacturing industry. What, did it make better to integrate to P1? Did it make better ideas or uh, sense to launch it out as a separate company? And you're very agile. You're, 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 you're not one of those individuals that says, no, that can't be done that way. You know, let, you always let the data kind of guide and lead the, the, the next uh, you know, steps in terms of how we do things. Where did that come from? I mean, you know, when you think about turnaround situations, and, and I'm also curious about when you did the e-commerce startup inside of a large corporation, what time frame was that in? And, and how did you learn that whole agile pivot change, and, and, and where did that come from? Well, so let's unpack those. I think it might actually have really started with that work inside that big Fortune 500 company. I, you, you go into it, and you have this great big vision. I want to do all of these things. And suddenly I saw a set of constraints. We have an IBM mainframe. And I'm like, okay, so I'm going to launch an e-commerce site foundationally on top of an IBM mainframe. And it turned out that we had to narrow things down. I had these 100 ideas about what I wanted to do. And it was like price, availability, take a credit card and have a shopping cart. That was it. And it turned out that that was enough. And I had all these great plans, and we had to just focus down and say, someone's got to be able to search and find the part they wanted. You've got to tell them how much it costs and what, you know, what's available, what the quantity is. If they want to buy it, you have to have a button and let them check out. And that's it. There was no marketing. There was no people could say, well, how, how did you know that market was there? And I was like, um, I don't know. We're inside a big Fortune 500 company. We're doing $3 billion worth of business. Seemed like a good theory that there was a $10 million business buried in there somewhere. And we just adapted and figured it out. And I mean, nowadays, I'd still be happy to grow a $10 million online business in 18 months. I would still be able to do that or be happy doing that in the year 2020. So I don't know. I think just getting my nose bloodied along the way and saying, you need a vision, but you have to adapt. 
And for a while, David, I thought that was a weakness. And then I heard uh, uh, Jeff Bezos, a quote from him where he said, he doesn't trust people who don't change their mind. Because inevitably, the data will present you with something that says you were wrong about something. So you just need to adjust and move on. I've always been criticized for the same thing in my life where people often say you change a lot or you shift or, you know, and I, I say the same thing as you. Look, we have a vision, you know, directionally we understand where we want to go. And I think that's what really drew me to you is, you know, if you think about our vision statement to revitalize American manufacturing through entrepreneurship, you were very entrepreneurial mm -hmm. and you did not approach the problem set that we were presenting from a very bureaucratic or stationary perspective. You know, we, you and I would have a dialogue on Friday. And then by Monday, we would have a separate a dialogue that completely shifted gears in the opposite <laughs> direction. And you went along with it. And I think that's what drew me to you. And, you know, through those conversations and that discussion, we made the determination because originally we were going to integrate the software inside mm -hmm. of P1 and launch a company called or launch kind of a service called Spindle. Mm -hmm. But through our dialogue at the end of last year, we made the decision. We said, you know what? It makes better sense to create an operating system inside of P1 called Spindle that leverages the power of software to you know, do supply chain at scale, bring process excellence and all the things we're trying to do. And then you and I made the decision that we wanted to launch a new software company because we thought that the value would not only be powerful for us, but it'd be powerful for other manufacturing companies outside of P1 and really fits our vision to revitalize American manufacturing. It's not just about what we can do, but it's also about giving the tools and the processes to other companies to allow them to grow and scale inside of the United States as well. So with that in mind, you and I made the decision to launch Piston, P1STON. And you wanted you built, started building a team. What's the vision that you've cultivated? Because you're the CEO of Piston. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got the ball rolling, but it's really your vision of Piston that's going to help take that company and establish it as what I would think a, a differentiator, you know, create competitive advantage in manufacturing. What's your vision for Piston? Well, we've worked together long enough now that, you know, I could give you a 30-minute answer to that question, but I won't. The vision, virtualizing and networking the world's production capabilities to maximize flow. That's a big vision, right? That, that, that takes our dialogue from Schenectady to a global scale. And that, mm. that's like, that's like a, an industry-shifting vision. Let's break it down a little bit. What do you mean by virtualizing and networking the world's production capabilities? We um, look at the notion of a factory today. We actually think that people are kind of lying to themselves a little bit when they think of their factory as four walls. Because scheduling a production floor inevitably requires understanding what materials you need to to make something. And inevitably, those materials have lead times on them. Well, those lead times get supplied by some set of direct suppliers. So immediately, scheduling a production floor is based on information that's outside the four walls. And that's one simple little example. And that's just about making a scheduling plan. That doesn't mean delivery, et cetera. And, um, that's not particularly easy in a high-volume, low-mix, make-to-stock environment. High-mix, high low-volume. So, no, what I'm saying is it's not easy in 
a... Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, I'm oh, so always saying it's already difficult. It's already difficult in a high-volume situation with lots of repetitiveness and lots of volume. Absolutely. Uh, okay, okay. Absolutely. And, and we're focusing on the low-volume, high-mix, ah. make-to-order make environment. And so it's really hard there. And by the way, if you let me connect the two, the interesting thing is I make certain, well, I'm focusing a lot of time studying software. I focus a lot on understanding lean manufacturing and how our manufacturing customers think about things. And interestingly, in the high volume, low mix, make to stock arena, they're all talking about lot size one. Mm. Well, what's lot size one? It's a make to order environment. So, you know, we're going after the make to order environment initially the make-to-stock environment is coming our way. So I really think we're ultimately going to be serving both. But back to your question, virtualizing and networking, listen, your factory is not four walls. It's beyond those four walls. If it's beyond those four walls, you need to, you need to take this set of distributed assets. You need to be able to interconnect with that set of distributed assets that are beyond your four walls, and you need to interoperate with that set of assets. And ideally, you have a single user experience so that you can make decisions and you know, maximize flow. So if you think about virtualizing production capabilities, we're really talking about the supply chain. So for the listener's benefit, you know, in manufacturing, there's, you know, if you think about automotive manufacturing, it's high volume, high repeat, long-term contracts. Uh, ERP systems work quite well for those environments because you're making 10,000 widgets. And again, I'm simplifying it, but you make 10,000 widgets, you have Kanban systems, you have minimum order quantities. But when you start shifting and start thinking more about the make-to-order environment, it's very short cycle uh, generally, in short cycle meaning less than eight weeks in cycle. Lead times are critical. You have to be very, very reactionary, and you're using finite capacity inside of your four walls and inside of your suppliers from a materials and outsourcing perspective. And having, you know, there's really no line of sight or visibility into the production capabilities of your supply chain. So fundamentally what you're saying, to keep it really simple, is you know, we're building a platform, an operating system. You're building an operating system that allows the user have a single user experience to aggregate all of the capabilities in their supply chain and treat it virtually as if it's inside the four walls of their factory. So that's what you mean by virtualizing and networking production capabilities. That today, all the make order supply chain is transactional. Hey, I, I need this part. I can make that part for $100. Here's a purchase order. Tell me when you're going to ship it. That's a very transactional and static environment in which we operate today. Fundamentally, you want to build a platform operating system that virtualizes all those capabilities across the whole supply chain so the user can make real-time uh, uh, decisions to optimize capacity, capabilities, delivery scenarios, and create optionality inside of that process. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And um, again, the customers that we focus on, the manufacturing customers, they speak in terms of quality, cost, and delivery, and using lean manufacturing techniques to kind of combine those three and, and, and you know hit the, the key metrics, which end up being reliability, margin, and throughput tend to be you know the, the, the main th metric themes that they pursue. But the irony is they almost always look at that inside the four walls. Well, you want a lean supply network. I mean, you want to you want to minimize waste, maximize. And is that flow. what you mean by flow? Because you talk about virtualizing, networking, manufacturing, production capabilities with flow. 
flow is the efficiency, the waste reduction fundamentally in that process. That, that's right. In fact, um, you know, listen, I don't pretend to be a lean expert by, by any stretch, but you're trying to get rid of waste, right? That's one of the key concepts of lean manufacturing. Just get rid of waste, right? And waste is something that the customer doesn't see as valuable. And um, kind of the flip side of that same coin is then to maximize flow. You know, I don't want... I don't want data stoppages. I don't want part stoppages. I just want everything moving. You, it's really hard to find somebody who says, gee, I'd like to need a piece of information to make a decision. And it brings me great pleasure to wait on that. You, <laughs> like, you, nobody you, using email and phone <laughs> yeah, calls right. and, and Excel spreadsheets, whereas you could just bring up a dashboard and understand exactly where your capacities are and everything else and be able to make better decisions in real time. That's right, because... Very frequently, you'll talk to someone and they say, I need these pieces of data. And then as I talk to the customers and they say, and then I kind of go through this thought process in my mind. And what I hear is input algorithms and then a conditional decision made upon it. It sounds like a computer program to me. And, but it's not, you know, it's not computerized. There's, there's flow stoppages of data all the time. It creates waste. And um, if you're going to stay competitive, you, you got to get rid of that. And there's a famous uh, saying that Deming has that a lot of lean people quote, which is to say, well, you know, you don't have to adapt like this, but that's also realizing the fact that survival is optional. You get to choose whether or not you're <laughs> going to survive. And, you know, I think this is where industry absolutely will go to survive. You might get a competitive advantage, but it's the only way you survive is to start maximizing flow. And there's tons of opportunity. And, and customers may not necessarily recognize waste from a process perspective, but they experience waste mm -hmm. in terms of cost, deliveries, lead times, quality of finished product. So the outcomes of waste really impact the end customer. And if you can give the customer the ability to see transparently into the process and understand and predict where waste is going to come so they can make better decisions using software, then that really becomes a meaningful change in the industry. Sure, and to take it out of the abstract, um, well, what does that mean day to day? If we've got uh, folks listening to us that are in the manufacturing environment, you know, open order reports, quoting, which is a cross-enterprise process. One people can say, well, I, I have a program to generate quotes in you know inside my factory when someone makes an order. Well, yeah, but... The, art, the request for quote came from a customer. It went out to three suppliers. Those three suppliers had three different ways of producing an answer that went back to a customer who had to make a decision. So the, the quoting process is a cross-enterprise process, and it is no way been optimized for a cross-enterprise process. So order status, quoting, various types of operational dashboards, supplier scorecards, lead time updates, no, all of those are examples of processes that, that end up being cross-enterprise processes that have not been optimized. And so we're looking at all of that inside a piston. Not all at once. You know, we've got a, we've got a sequence that we're going after, but um, it's not abstract thinking. These are real practical problems that need to be solved. And those tangible problems are a great uh, example of what we're trying to do inside of P1. Yeah. Building a software platform through Piston that not only can we sell to the broader markets and other customers, but we can actually use in-house to modernize and build the platform to run the spindle operating system inside of P1. So that, I think that's a great, great segue to helping us understand how it applies to real-time business. Because in our perspective, we're building, you know, today we're a $23 million 
revenue run rate business in our contract manufacturing business. But we have a vision to take that to 50 using the piston platform because it really removes all that waste of capacity utilization, you know, uh, uh, translation of requirements to supply chain and really production planning and efficiency and, and getting throughput up while also getting quality and, and, and cost down, quality up and cost down as well. You made an interesting point, and I want to transition a little bit to talk about your experience coming into a manufacturing business because your background is in e-commerce. Your background is in software, rocket docs. Uh, you know, it's n- never in your experience, based on you sharing that, have you said, hey, you know, I worked in a production facility or I worked in a manufacturing plant. And you made a comment, which I thought was really interesting. I don't know if you knew you, you actually made it, but you, you started talking about the manufacturing process and you started talking about the supply chain process. And in your brain, that instantly went to a computer problem. Like you started, you know, sequencing in your mind, not from a, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, raw materials, I'm thinking machines, I'm thinking direct labor, I'm thinking logistics. In your mind, you're thinking algorithms, you're thinking of inputs, you're thinking of outputs, you're thinking computer programs. So you've kind of translated the whole manufacturing process in your brain to a software process. Tell me about your experience coming into a position as CEO of Piston, working in an industry you've never really worked in, and what you're learning and, and, and kind of how you've conceptualized the manufacturing process into a software process. Well, I know that's a lot, but, uh, you know, take it away. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, um, a couple of things. Um, be, uh, before I got into software, you know, my educational background is engineer, but, um, you know, listen, the Belomos actually started in manufacturing, you know. Papa Belomo left Italy, jumped on a boat, came through Ellis Island, jumped on a train, and ended up, ended up in a foundry in upstate New York manufacturing for 35 years. And uh, my father then worked at that same company uh, out on the production floor for 42 years. And so there Before was, you said that, I was, I was for certain thinking the Belomo started in pasta and marinara yeah, sauce, no. you know, <laughs> the way you were explaining it right from the boat in Italy. <laughs> uh, so they, uh, you know, that's, that's, what, that's what they did. And in my case, you know, I did well in high school and got a scholarship to uh, uh, an engineering college and got an engineering degree. But, you know, I interned at Ghoul's Pumps and at IBM and at GE and spent three years at a GE production facility. And then I consulted um, for an amount of time uh, while at Arthur D. Little to... IBM, Intel, 3M, GE Aviation, Pratt & Whitney. So I, I had my nose in manufacturing, you know, for, for, for a fair bit of time, enough to, you know, learn a few things. But then, then I jumped into software. And this felt really good because it was like, well, you know, I'm not a manufacturing guy, would never claim to be. But, you know, I certainly had my nose in the space. And then I've been in software, and then I saw what P1 and the broader make-to-order manufacturing world was going through, and I was like, oh, well, listen, I've got a lot to learn about the specifics, but I, I think I bring a little bit to the party. And, and listen, I like to solve problems. So to me, it's exciting, right? And, I, you, know, for, you know, thinking about that, one of the things I like most about you is you're, you know, you're in your 50s, and you're always learning. Like you're, you're a learner. You're, you're not a, you didn't come into the mix saying, Hey Dave, I got this. You know, I've got all the answers. I know how to do this. I'm a seasoned guy. I'm, you know, 10 years older than you. I know how to take it from here. Mm-hmm. Not to talk about your age, but you, you look like you're 22, but <laughs> you know, you've got the wisdom of a 52 year old, you know, but, um, 
you know, you came in, you're always learning, you're always growing, and, you, and you're, you're always asking good questions and stuff like that. And I think that's what's really acclimated the team to you quite well, is that you didn't come in saying, hey, I've got this experience, got that experience. You know, tell a little bit about how you've worked with the P1 team in terms of learning and discovering how to build a software platform that's not only meaningful for the broader market, but also for what we're trying to do inside of our business. So, so I will um, answer the question, but I'll tell you a little story first. Um, I'll start by saying this simply. If people don't say, I don't know, I don't trust them. So if I don't hear, I don't know, come out of somebody's mouth, I don't trust them. And it's interesting because some people think that to say I don't know is, is a weakness. And the story is about my wife talking to one of her friends. And this friend of hers said, my husband thinks he knows everything. He is always right. He's got such a big ego. Well, Kathy, my wife, will say, well, that's not a big ego. You should be with my husband. My husband will be convinced that he's absolutely right about something, totally confident. And I'll walk him through it, and then suddenly he'll realize, oh, my God, I was wrong. But then he walks off feeling like he's still as confident as can be. That's a big ego. Somebody who is completely convinced they're right, you prove them that they're wrong, and then they go, okay, I was wrong, and they move on. And so... Um, you know, you have to think that you're right about things because you have to pursue something. You have to, if you're going to go build something, you got to have a plan. you got to build it. And um, I act like that. But inevitably, I don't know. So let's be practical. Yesterday morning, you don't know this. Uh, I uh -oh. Uh -oh. Yeah, right. Over the weekend, <laughs> over the weekend, I was like, we got our beta coming out. We're totally cool. So by beta, we have a module one you've been building the last couple months that's coming out right. this week, right? Or that's it, right. Yeah. We're rolling We're rolling out. Um, where are we? Yeah, yeah. Th that's right. Like this week, we're rolling out uh, the first this week. And I'm working really closely, you know, with Brian and Johnny and Johanna and Brandon and Rick. Et Those are all P1 employees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Working yeah. On the team. yeah. And um, I, we, of course, already have the plans for the major release, September 30th, we targeted. And we know already what we're going to build. And over the weekend, I realized that I thought we missed something for the major release. And I called up Brian and said, hey, I don't know how something works. And I asked him, and I was like, didn't we kind of miss this? And he's like, oh, yeah, like this really needs to be part of the major release. So I don't know. It just feels natural to me to ask questions. I am a learner, and we'll get to that later, but... Yeah, lifelong learner, not afraid to say I don't know, not afraid to ask questions. But isn't that the difference between a large company and an entrepreneurial business that, you know, you're, you have a major release coming out this week and you uh, have been working on it, I mean, fundamentally since January, you did a yep. bunch of discovery for a few months, talked to a lot of customers, built out a strategy, a plan, hired an architect, you know, built out, uh, you know, an offshore programming team. They're, they're probably working 10, 12 hours mm -hmm. a day, but you're, you're humble enough to say, hey, maybe we missed something. And, you know, going back and fixing that versus just hitting a date for release is more important than just hitting a release date effectively. And is that, that's what you're saying, essentially. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, in this instance, I'm hoping that it won't move. This up. This is sure. something to roll with September 30th. But you're always asking the questions. You're always yeah. thinking about it, right? Yeah. You're, and I think if, you, if, if you're building a company in the 21st century, you know, and, and, and this is an interesting dynamic because we're building a software company 
birthed out of a manufacturing company. Right. And you know, from your perspective, you're always asking those questions and trying. Fundamentally, what you're telling me is, I want to create real value. And if it makes me having to ask questions at the 11th hour about something we've done, I'm willing to do it because we've got to create value. Absolutely. And in fact, it came back to a flow thing because I said to myself, gee, I think there's a first step of this order status process that we're working on that still needs email. I think it still needs email. Why did I leave that out? Why would I allow it to kick off with an email? Shouldn't I be able to make that go away? And I called up Brian and said, I'm going to ask some questions and I'm going to play dumb. I asked him some question. How does that happen? He goes, oh, that starts with an email. I was like, well, why, <laughs> why would we do that? Shouldn't we blah, blah, blah and do it inside a piston like that? He thought that would be great. And I was like, yeah. He's happy. <laughs> Funny thing is he's all happy. Oh, thank you. And I'm thinking to myself, you're, you're happy. I feel like I missed something. But, it, <laughs> but anyway, we caught it. We, you know, this is for September 30th and we're in July. I think we'll be fine. And in, incidentally, we had a... By the way, Brian instantly answered the phone at like 7.30 yesterday because yeah. I was going to get on an 8.30 a.m. call with my software team. We do daily stand-ups. And, um, you know, I call Brian. He answers. I'm calling my customer. He's not saying why you're interrupting me. He takes time out of his morning. 20 minutes later, I have that answer. And I go into my 8.30 call. And by the way, the architect and the developer said, piece of cake. The hardest thing is going to be the design side. You, you know, the big difference, you know, between me and Brian, Brian's, you know, at 730 taking phone calls to talk about software. I'm drinking my first cup of coffee. haven't even showered yet. So, you know, that, <laughs> that's the difference. Between Brian. But he's in bed by 8 p.m. and I'm in bed by midnight. Yeah, so right. we, we've got those differences. <laughs> you know, that's a really important point they just made. You know, when we think about P1 Ventures and really want to revitalize American manufacturing through entrepreneurship, one of our strategies as a company is to launch and build new enterprises. So, you know, not only have the contract manufacturing business, but we're doing exactly that with Piston. We've launched and are building a new enterprise out of P1, right? Dedicated and focused on the manufacturing industry to solve a real technical problem with software and with technology. That's why we say we're, we're a manufacturing and technology company because we're trying to build that portfolio. That's important, right? When, when you think about P1 launching an enterprise called Piston, um, you know, you're building the business. It's your business. You're the CEO. You're casting the vision. You're, you're, you're kind of creating it for the broader marketplace. Having that tie-in to a kind of an internal customer that you can bounce things off of on a consistent basis. And, you, you know, you read Lean Startup. You, you read those types of dialogues around startup companies. A lot of it has to do with having constant contact with your customer. I, have you ever built a software business or grown up a software business having this close a connection with a potential user and internal customer that's informing how you build software for the broader market? No, this is the best experience I've ever had. I mean, I, I can't. You know, I've mentioned the folks, you know, Johnny and Brian, Johanna are phone calls away. Uh, two weeks ago, I sat down with a whole afternoon mapping stuff out around scheduling with Brandon. I've also been on the call, several calls with Rick. I mean, listen, I'll bump into something where you just need a guy who spent 40 years in manufacturing like Rick has. And I drop him a note and within 24 hours, you know, I get a 20-minute phone call. It can be me. It can be Natalie, who's our lead designer. Yeah, and she's been incredible on the team. Yeah, and um, and by the way, there's no hierarchy. Like if I call because I'm the CEO, your guys will work. But Nat, none, of, none of that, right? Natalie, um, who's you know, 
kind of fits into the realm of all the people you've been talking about, about, you know, she's, you know, got three years experience going on 15, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And very smart, intellectual, hardworking. Absolutely. And your team gives her the time of day just as quickly as with me. And to absolutely be clear about the answer to your question, it's, uh, it's never been this easy. The best way to build software is to have access to customers who have the problem. And, you know, the doors open, f you know, at P1 for us. So it makes it really easy. Yeah. And, you know, that's, uh, to me, that, that gives me a lot of affirmation because that's all about vision. Mm. When people understand the vision that we want to revitalize American manufacturing through entrepreneurship, and part of that vision, part of the expression of that vision is launching a new technology company. You know, we have to treat it as just as important as the work we're doing on a daily basis because even though there might not be revenue benefit or value creation benefit in the near term, they get the vision and where we're going on the long term and they're willing to invest time and energy in that today. Yeah, listen, an example of that that's really kind of incredible is Tony and Michael who are really driving sales and marketing. And for the benefit of the listeners, uh, we interviewed Tony and Michael as part of the modern mentorship program inside of our business. They run our sales department. Oh, yeah, a couple weeks ago you That's interviewed right. two of them, right. Um, you know, listen, they've got customers. Salespeople protect their customers. Well, we're working on things that it would be good to talk to folks beyond P1. They go, oh, I got customer contacts. I'll hook you up with them. And we've had several conversations with customers. Likewise, P1 has suppliers. And uh, Brian has facilitated conversations with suppliers. And so, you know, it's not just working directly with the P1 folks, but them opening up their Rolodex. And, and you know, they're just doing it because it feels like the right thing to do. Michael's, by the way, volunteering to do marketing work for can i do marketing work for piston i go i don't you know, sure i guess if we had to work they goes oh, i'll fit it in don't worry you know and i started worrying about incentives he's like don't worry about it we'll figure out a way to fit it fit it in so really got the right attitude so it's never been this easy so a couple last questions we've been on this journey you and i for almost a year yeah i think august would be about a year yeah so august you 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 came in as an advisor. We were under, working under the premise that we were going to build this business called Spindle. Mm -hmm. So essentially, instead of building just software, we we're trying to build a business model. Uh, over the course between August and December, you know, other people involved, we determined that, hey, we're going to integrate the Spindle business model into P1, which became our Spindle operating system. And we're going to launch a standalone software company. And, you know, so, and, and the reason why I'm sharing that, again, with the listening audience is because that's a very important attribute around entrepreneurship is being willing to make those decisions, be agile and everything else. And here we are almost 12 months later. If you told us 12 months ago that we'd be standing here releasing module one for a standalone software company that we're going to sell to other OEMs and suppliers and manufacturers in the industry, you know, I would have told you you're nuts. We're building it for P1. But here we are having this conversation. We've made a lot of progress in 12 months. We've got a long ways to go. Where do you want to see Piston in five years? So five years from now, there's a financial side that says we need to be self-sustaining. We've got to be generating enough cash to be able to, you know, carry our own water. Apart from that financial metric, I think we can have hundreds of customers, which I believe will be 
OEMs, end customers, suppliers. And when you say customer, you're not about users. It could be thousands of users, but you're talking about like OEM customers. Yes, right, right. Uh, companies, right. It should be thousands of users. And just for the benefit of the audience, there's about 4.8 million industrial buyers in the United States. So it's a sizable market. Yeah, and that's the United States. And if we're going to go global, so it, it just gets to crazy numbers when you think of the size of the market. I mean, if traditional like venture capital firms, the from a software perspective, we're selling into a multi-billion dollar software market. In a software market that doesn't necessarily exist. There's, there's a transactional process. Right. There's a bunch of supplemental, or I call it cluttered software platforms that exist inside of that transactional supply chain model. But there's really no singular platform Mm-hmm. that really becomes an operating system for the virtual factory. Right. And so there's, you know, that's, your, that's the answer. The answer is five years from now, I'd like to be self-sustaining on a cash basis. And I'd like to see us as the operating system for virtual factories. What does that mean? That means that not only are we um, facilitating transactions and providing functionality ourselves, but the real test will be when there's other software companies that are building functionality that we didn't realize was needed or didn't have the capacity to build because we were making other choices. And they build a piece of functionality that they can connect into our platform to serve our customer base so that we truly do serve as an operating system. They're like, You're, you've got to virtualize uh, and network the world's capabilities production capabilities, fabulous for you. We're going to bring new functionality. Let us bolt on to you. And and that is when we will really realize that. I know this sounds crazy, but that sounds like the iPhone strategy, right? You build this device, you build this operating system, you create this app environment, you have iTunes, integrates kind of all the information sharing flow and allows, it takes a singular phone device and create, you know, essentially becomes an operating system to do anything from communications to listening to podcasting to games to everything else. Essentially, you want to build the iPhone for manufacturing that builds a platform, an operating system that allows that software, that platform to virtualize production capabilities, enhance the make-to-order supply chain, make it super, super efficient, drive up capacity utilization, but then allows a lot of other people to create apps that we never even thought about to plug into that system to keep enhancing that network in the ecosystem. It's a good example, and in this case, I think it's not a metaphor as much as it's an analogy. Or an illustration, yeah. Yeah, really works. And if you don't like that, then think in terms of Salesforce.com, what they did for this sales enablement space. Uber has done it again. Yeah, for transportation, sure. Sure, there's a lot of examples. We'd like to do it for uh, production. That's right. And I think one of the big data points in production is, you know, the United States, in aggregate, generally uses about 75% of its capacity utilization on a production basis across the U.S. That translates into like $2.4 trillion in uh, EBIT or in GDP. I wish that was EBITDA. That'd be great. Uh, <laughs> GDP. And the economic impact with a multiplier effect is fundamentally over $5 trillion a year. Again, we're talking in aggregate numbers. We're not talking about inside the, the four walls of one factory. But for every 1% gain in GDP, that's a 60 to $70 billion impact on the U.S. GDP, which can fundamentally shift the whole balance of trade in the United States. So fundamentally, what you're, you know, when we think about Piston really bringing optimization uh, and flow to the make-to-order supply chain, you're talking about increasing capacity utilization inside of factories and inside of supply chains, which fundamentally has a big impact on our economy. Yes, and I would go further even and say 
I wonder how they're actually measuring capacity. Is that really the capacity or with flow is your capacity oh, 20% more, 50% more? I mean, so I, I think the upside is beyond my ability. And that, 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 has a, that to me is a linear uh, correlation to revitalizing American manufacturing. Sure. Is getting that utilization. Okay, last couple of questions. Uh, PJ, tell me about your hobbies. Who are you as a person? You, you, you're a seasoned software executive. Somehow, some way, I've manipulated, I mean, convinced you to come to Schenectady <laughs> to help us build a software business that we think is going to revitalize American manufacturing and enhance our business and the manufacturing industry overall. Tell us about you. You know, what makes you get up in the morning? What drives you? I love the fact that we share a love of books and learning. We share a lot of books together. And uh, But tell me about yourself. So I've learned to summarize what's important to me with an acronym that sounds like a some type of wrestling federation. I, <laughs> I say WWFFL. Work, workout, food, family, learning. That's, that's what I'm about. The first two are probably self-evident, work, work out. Although with the workout thing, you know, that can go on. You know, I like to lift. I like to walk. I like to do high-intensity interval training, yoga. I like hitting a heavy bag. And so I, I'm still figuring out, you know, what the optimal thing is. But and I uh, like eating. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, that's. That, I like high-intensity <laughs> interval eating. So, you know, that's that's. <laughs> Well, that's next. Uh, that, that's next. One of the funny things is, you know, but locked down in this pandemic, I challenged myself on a couple food things. I, I made vegetarian chili for the first time and found, you know, figured out a way to make my own recipe where I really, really liked it. But uh, food, family, and learning, you know, kind of outside of working and working out, food, family, and learning, um, food and family are probably self-explanatory. But I will say that um, I always say um, – that the greatest two gifts my parents ever gave me were my sisters. I'm best friends with my sisters. Wow, that's I, amazing. Yeah, speak to them. Are they local or are they? They're in you know, Western New York, yeah, yeah, so, so Ro Rochester area. And, um, and we talk multiple times a week. We, and, you know, now that we're going to be back in New York, we'll see each other a lot more. And, um, you know, my son and my wife are my best friends and um, you know, close to my mom. So, you know, family really is important to me in that sense. But, I mean, selfish. They're my friends. I mean, I get a lot of joy out of my family. And then learning. Um, I'm constantly doing something that I'm not good at. So one of the things, I've been studying Italian, um, and I'm just bad at languages, really, really bad. And I study it every day. And I'm, like, on a, some crazy streak, like 800 days in a row of wow. studying Italian. Um, Could you hold a conversation with someone? No, but um, I, I frequently... Once a week, I find myself in a situation where I need to send Lorenzo a text. Lorenzo being, uh, he's our content director for our marketing department. Yeah, right. And he's full-blooded Italian. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and uh, speaks fluent Italian. And I will think, I need to say five sentences and I know how to I know how to say one of them in Italian. So I'll like, <laughs> so I'll get this four four English one. Uh, and he, he hasn't yelled at you. He hasn't no, said you, no. you called my cat a dirty scoundrel no, or something. No, no, he's very encouraging, very, <laughs> very helpful. Um, so that, and I'm, I'm reading stuff, and well, just you know, listen. In this industry, I've stepped into, you know, I know a lot about agile software development, my years of experience, but you know, I've thrown myself in the lean because my customers think in terms of lean. And what are you reading right now? Give me one book you're reading right now. 
Well, actually, reading right now, I've um, I'm reading um, uh, for whom the bell tolls. Come on, actually, yeah, no, that's that's what I'm reading right now, and I'm listening to. I'm not actually reading. Am I reading a non nonfiction thing right now? Of course, I read the Pan Industrial Revolution. By the way, for those listening, Pan Industrial Revolution is a great vision, or not even a vision, it's a blueprint for yeah. trying to build what we're trying to build with Piston. Yeah, I mean, I think you know he's he's right on more than fifty percent. Yeah. And anyone who's right on more than fifty percent is someone you got to read. You know, I don't think he got it all right. Oh. I mean, he's an academic. He's making some assumptions around three D printing and networking those things. Yeah, and but else. I I really think he's he sees the the future there. And so that was a, that was a, a, a recent not not fiction. I, I I got pitch anything. I'm midway through pitch anything. So really, just preparing to raise money. And, yeah, yeah, right, right. So it's not exciting, but yeah, you know, you know it's funny. We have a couple of young interns working for us, mm-hmm. and I have them working extensively on data pulling data because you know. One of the things we're going to do for Piston is we're kind of taking the alphabet model, which is the Google model, right. where you launch an enterprise out of your existing core business, and you want that business to go get funded because it kind of validates your assumptions, your hypotheses. It really kind of separates it out from underneath the mother company and puts it out into the marketplace. And so we're building a pitch deck. And I told some of the interns they're, they're pulling data after data after data after data around really you know, establishing the problem statements for Piston, the market structures and go to model or go to market strategies and all that stuff. And they're like, wow, this is very intensive and very, you know, detailed and almost painful. <laughs> and I said, well, welcome to the startup world because everyone reads Inc. Magazine. They look at Forbes and they read about these incredible founders doing these really interesting and sexy things. Well, really, building a company is down and dirty, chaotic. It's crazy. It's, you know, hard, hard detailed, data-driven work that just takes iterative kind of development and everything we do, not only the software piece, but the business model piece and the pitch deck piece and the, the fundraising piece. It's constantly iterative. Right, right. Well, you know, you back to the learning thing, um, if listeners kind of paid close attention, they might have come to the notion that, hey, isn't this PJ's first time at a software company where he's actually employee number one? And the answer is yes. So while I've always had my hands dirty, like let's take the world of learning, um, I haven't had to design the QA for the first rollout. So like a few weeks ago, Natalie goes to me, so what are we going to do for the QA on the rollout? I was like, oh, good question. (laughs) (laughs) And and I've always always had somebody who had a QA process. And, you know, we had a QA, quality assurance. Quality assurance for the new piece of software and the testing, you know, testing before you you roll it out. And we're doing a beta, but still you want to test it. You want to be thorough. And um, so we had to learn on that. So they're just learning that we're doing literally within within uh, Piston itself to, to deliver. So, um, you know, that's, a, that's, that's my life. I, I tell you what, you give me eight more lives, you know, I'll learn to be a beekeeper and a sculptor <laughs> and, you know, a translator. And, yeah, there's more. I got more things that I'd well, like to Well, now I know learn. where your agility and ability to adapt and learn comes from, <laughs> which is one of the paramounts of being a great entrepreneur. So, look, I appreciate your time today, PJ. Um, you know, for the listener's benefit, one of the things you might be thinking to yourself, wow, you know, P1's a contract manufacturing firm to start 13 years ago, and here we are talking about software. And I think that's a really important thing to recognize and understand that in order to revitalize American manufacturing through entrepreneurship, we have to invest not only in core manufacturing capabilities, but in new technologies that allow us to build the manufacturing enterprise of the future. 
And so what we've learned about today is how we've launched a, a software company with a seasoned entrepreneur, someone who's become a great, great part of our team, someone who gets and understands the vision in terms of what we're trying to accomplish, and he's passionate about learning and growing in this industry and really changing it for the better in the future. And, you know, our Spindle operating system is really leveraging the software that PJ and his team are building in order to automate and digitize our business model inside of P1 so we can actually bring our vision, mission, and values to life through process excellence, sales and marketing automation, supply chain at scale, using a software platform to change how we do business in the 21st century. And then you couple that with the next generation workforce and the vision that we have, and it becomes a pretty powerful combination for building something truly special in today's world. So PJ, I want to thank you for your time today. Uh, you know, we, we think that Piston is going to be a game-changing, industry-shifting technology. Uh, having your vision and your your time and energy in, in building that is, a, is, is very, very formidable, and we appreciate being part of the team. Today uh, at P1 Ventures, uh, we appreciate you listening. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about process excellence and bringing in Rick Rafalik, who's got 42 years' experience in manufacturing. You know, when I met Rick, I thought I knew a lot about manufacturing because I built a manufacturing business from the ground up with a great team. But what I realized is I actually know nothing about manufacturing. <laughs> so if I can build a manufacturing without knowing anything about manufacturing compared to what Rick knows, imagine what we can build with Rick on the team. So we're really excited to talk to Rick next week about process excellence as one of the big foundational elements to building the spindle operating system or what we call the operating system for the 21st century contract manufacturer. So thank you for listening. At P1 Ventures, manufacturing is more than a career. It's a calling. Thank you for spending this time with us. Please head over to p1ind.com where you can find out a lot more about P1 Ventures and David Dussault.